Several years ago, uh, my wife, Allie, and I wanted to give our kids a lesson on money and budgeting, and we'd heard about a practical exercise using real cash and sorting it into monthly spending categories. So I went to the bank and withdrew $7,000 in cash. I was a little anxious driving home, like, don't get into an accident. Uh, with $7,000 in cash. Okay, so we, we uh, generally set aside Sunday evening dinner for kind of a family meeting time. And we'll look at the week's calendar of events, and then we'll talk about any conversations or topics that Allie and I want to address with our kids. Um, and that can range in everything from social media use, responsible phone use, uh, we cover racism or sex and sexuality, the whole gambit. Um, and usually the topics are met with some degree of eye-rolling from our kids, but not this time. When I put $7,000 in cash on the table, I had their full attention. We had pre-made some cards of spending categories to divide up everything. So we had the mortgage and food and gas and vehicle, uh, our 10% giving to sanctuary and other nonprofits, vacation and so on. And so we first just divided up the money into those categories, and then we had a long conversation about what life costs, where we spend our money, and why. I hope it was a meaningful lesson for our kids. <laughs> for me, honestly, what struck me was how good it felt to handle that much cash. <laughs> It was like, besides the anxiety of driving, it felt oddly invigorating and energizing to hold on to the money, and it reminded me of Scrooge McDuck from DuckTales, <laughs> where he swims in his money vault, like the 90s cartoon. I don't know if you all have seen that, but there you go. Um, now, apparently, me and Scrooge are not alone in this invigorating, empowering feeling of money. A number of experiments have been done to examine the psychological impact of handling cash and what it does to human beings. So in one experiment, participants were separated into two groups of people. One group counted slips of paper, and the other group counted cash. Then participants were subjected to two things. Put your hands in really, really hot water, not like causing burns, but very hot, not comfortable, and then playing a computer game in which the odds were stacked against them and they were going to be excluded quickly from the game and get kicked out. And then they were asked to rate their level of discomfort and then their level of frustration or emotional pain from being excluded from the game so quickly. And the effect of handling and counting money had an empowering effect. So those people who counted money recorded less physical discomfort, and less emotional distress at the game. In another experiment, the two groups, two groups of people, one was asked to record the weather from the previous month using a chart. The other was asked to record everything they had spent money on, all their bills from the previous month. And guess what happened? It was the equal but opposite impact. So the group that recorded their bills recorded, recorded more physical discomfort and more emotional distress at the game. Just like thinking about money leaving us is painful. It makes us feel vulnerable and disempowered. The research did the same thing with uh, counting fake money from the worst game ever, Monopoly. And it produced the same results, just counting fake money did it. They even did a screensaver just showing pictures of cash to participants. Same thing. People felt empowered after they just watched money on their screens. Which makes me wonder, friends, 
maybe we could adjust the logo of Sanctuary. So here's our current logo. <laughs> Let's change the S to a dollar sign. Okay? I, just workshopping here. We could also, I mean, I love the colorful swirl, but why don't we make it into some Benjamins? Okay? And we all feel better about ourselves every Sunday. It would be so great. Our email open rate would dramatically increase, I'm guessing. The point is, money has a psychologically empowering effect on human beings, which makes sense. Money is associated with all kinds of different power. Money influences political power, social power, legal power, and of course, financial or economic power. The question I want us to explore this morning is how does adding faith impact that relationship between money and power? How does our faith in God relate to that? Are money and God two rival sources of power? We can turn to money for a feeling of empowerment. We can also turn to God for a feeling of empowerment. So does that set them up as rivals? Um, what do we do with our money? And what does that say about our faith in God? Now, there is a lot of material in the Bible about the relationship between money and power and God. And we're going to look at one story in which Jesus offers some wisdom about this complicated relationship, okay? Now, the story happens during the final week of Jesus' life. He's in the temple, and he's engaged in a series of public debates with the religious leaders, the religious authorities. We're going to pick it up in Mark chapter 12, starting verse 13. Then the chief priests and the scribes and elders sent to Jesus some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. Okay, brief pause. Um, I'll go back to that. Here, okay, we have a window into first century Jewish politics. And we see five different political factions that are named in this introductory verse. Five different authorities all coming to challenge Jesus. This would be a little bit like the Coralville City Council, the Johnson County Supervisors, the Governor's Office, uh, I don't know, the, the sheriff, and coaches from the Iowa football team, the leading authorities <laughs> of our land, coming to sanctuary to challenge Aidy on her teaching and preaching. We all know Aidy would win that little <laughs> dispute. And uh, that's what's happening here with Jesus. And he's about to win. We're going to watch him win. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you aren't swayed by others because you show no partiality, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Oh my gosh. This is flattery that's not going to work. They have not done their research on what helps conversations with Jesus work well. Okay, Jesus does not fall for flattery. He doesn't fall for criticism either. He's unflappable. But this is what they lead with. This is not going to go well. Here they keep going. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius, a coin, and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, 
and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. As many have observed, there are two certainties in this life, death and taxes. (laughs) The very next question Jesus gets is about death. (laughs) But first, they test him on taxes. It's great. And uh, so they bring to him this question of paying taxes to Caesar or not. It's the million denarius question. And speaking of denarii, I have some imitation ones, and I'm going to pass them around so you can see what this coin is like. So we'll have one per section. Just take it, show and tell time. Take one, keep passing it back, and we'll put it in the sound booth when you're done. There you go. Thank you, Ryan. So here's the imitation. My wife picked these up in Bath, England, where you can find some Roman ruins, and pick it up at your souvenir shop. An imitation. It's not a real coin. They didn't, like, dig this up. Um, But we make these now? Uh, Yeah, and sell them in souvenir shops in Bath, England. So there you go. You'll see it. All right, should we pay taxes to Caesar? This is a very complicated question in the first century. And it's complicated for two reasons, one political and one theological. So first, political. Rome is the evil empire, and Caesar is its emperor. So the question is, you want to give money to this guy? That's who we're going to pay taxes to? We're going to support the empire? Oh my gosh. From the perspective of everyone in Jerusalem, all the Jewish people, Rome is the occupying foreign government. Who are these people in our land? This is our land. God gave us this land. And you bring all your soldiers here? And you bring your foreign deities here? And you're going to tax us? No way. We don't want to do that. We're not going to give money to the evil empire. The second reason this is tricky is theological. The divine status of Caesar is at stake. The question, is Caesar divine? Is Caesar Lord? Was circulating the air in the first century around the time of Jesus. There was, in the decades before Jesus, uh, Roman emperors began to claim divine status and authority. It's not that they saw themselves as like God, the one supreme deity, but they saw themselves as image bearers of divine status and authority, special image bearers. Like they were the only ones, okay, the only people. And I know that in our tradition, it's a little bit weird to think about this, but in the first century, the definition of God was a lot more elastic than what we've been handed in our tradition. We have a sense that there is God and not God. That's it. There's two categories, right? The supreme God and then everything else. But in the first century of the Greco-Roman world, it was a lot more porous and broad and elastic. Different agents could somehow share in divinity. So when Caesar, the first one, claimed, I'm kind of divine, everyone was like, cool, sounds good. Unless you were Jewish. If you were Jewish, you'd be thinking, no, 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 hang on. The God of Israel would no way sanction the divinity of the evil emperor to become divine. That does not add up. So there were some popular religious leaders in Jerusalem, Jewish leaders, who argued against paying taxes to Caesar because they believed it would compromise their faith, their faithfulness to God. They would say, you have to choose. You need to choose between loyalty to God 
or loyalty to Caesar. Who's Lord? It ain't Caesar, they said. So you got to pick. The folks who argued for this had some very good evidence to back up their argument, by the way. So they said, hey, just look at the money. Look at the money. Here's a denarius from the time of Jesus. And check out the inscription. It says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. The money itself attributes divinity to the lineage of Roman emperors. This would have felt really gross to everyone in Jerusalem. Like, this is, what is this? It's gross. I, I don't agree with this. It's not, he's not divine? No, gross. This is the coin that Jesus asked them to bring. Bring me a denarius. And here it is. So as everyone is looking at this coin with this inscription, Jesus says the line, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's brilliant because first, Jesus is accommodating the position of paying taxes. So he's allowing it. He's like, yeah, pay taxes. But he does it with this really cheeky explanation. He says, look at the coin. Whose face is on it? Caesar. I mean, his face is on it. They're kind of his. You should probably give it back to him, right? Like throw him a bone. (laughs) It's a great answer, right? He kind of gets out of it. And the early Christians definitely interpreted Jesus' teachings as doing that, as upholding the practice of paying taxes to Caesar. We see that in other New Testament documents. Um, And this is also a much more peaceable solution to not pay taxes The Roman emperors did not look kindly on folks who did that, and it did not go well for them. We have historical evidence of that, and I won't go into the details, but it's gory. Okay, so you can pick that, or you can pay your tax. We'll pay tax, Jesus says, but because the guy's face is on it, give it back to him. So pay it. But the brilliance of Jesus' answer comes in his second part, where he says, give to God the things that are God's. By adding this line, Jesus reasserts the number one priority at stake here, which is faith and faithfulness to God. He's providing a way out of that theological dilemma. Yeah, you have to pay taxes, but what matters to God is what belongs to God. And what belongs to God? That's the question. What belongs to God? And that question is what hangs in the air over this debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. What belongs to God? What are we supposed to give to God? What belongs to God? And it is the question that comes to us today. How are we to give to God the things that are God's? What's Jesus asking of us? One of the Psalms answers the question this way. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. In other words, everything. The whole thing, friends. Everything belongs to God. Even those little coins with Caesar's face on them. Yeah, they're his, but they're also God's. Everything belongs to God. Our money belongs to God. Our possessions God's, the land, all creation, every animal, God's, 
and human beings. Every person belongs to God. Jesus has them look at the coin and Caesar's face is on it, Caesar's image. And he asks them, whose image and likeness is on this coin? There's a parallel to that. Where can we find God's image and likeness in the world? People. Every human being is made in God's image and likeness. So when Jesus says, well, give back to the guy who put his face on it, the implication there is give to God. The things that bear God's image. Where can we find God's image? It's on us. We are the divine image bearers and every person we encounter. This is a reflection of the great commandment. When when it all boils down to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves, Because every every single person we encounter is a person made in God's image. And to give them to God, what does that mean? There it is. It means to love them as God loves them. To love our neighbor as ourself. I think the implications are enormous. I mean, it's, it's everything. We talk about this, the kinds of implications here a lot at Sanctuary. We talk about generosity and hospitality. Or advocating for shared prosperity and security. In other words, justice enacting justice in the world. And we can set up this simple comparison between an economy that Caesar represents versus an economy that would line up with who God is and how God calls us to live. We can try to be like Caesar, try to set up shop as individual emperors, overseeing our own empires, our own individual prosperity. And we can imitate that. A little Caesar. (laughs) I'm trying. Or we can look to God and God's ways in the world and imitate what we see of God to enact justice, to spread generosity and abundance and practice a shared concern of welfare for all, especially looking out for the poor as God reminds us again and again through the tradition and in the scripture. So the question that comes to us today is that question that hangs in the air. What belongs to God? How will we live? How will we use our money in a way that is consistent with how we answer this question? What will we do with our resources? What will we do with our power? that money gives us? And how will we use it to line up with how God calls us to live? Let's take a moment to bring this question to God in prayer as we close. Please pray with me. God of all creation, God whose image is on all 8 billion human beings alive today, and all humans who ever will be. We bring this question before you. What belongs to you, O God? How can we use our money 
our power in service of your vision of life and of justice? How are you calling us to be faithful to you? Amen.